0: Hello, and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today, I am joined by special guest, very special guest, an old friend, Philip Morgan. Philip, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. So for folks who maybe haven't heard your name before, could
1: you give us a quick 30-second name, rank, and serial number? All right, start the timer. My name's Philip Morgan. I help (laughs) independent consultants thrive. Uh, I've arrived at this weird made-up job for myself starting with an interest in how specialization is a beachhead that provides this really outsized advantage and i've ended up becoming generally interested in how uh sort of indie experts you know folks like yourself jonathan me to an extent like how do we cultivate expertise and turn that into uh, economic output Mm, awesome love it yeah totally aligned of course um
0: so the the sort of impetus for this particular interview was an email you sent out to your list with a subject line, a perpetually fascinating specialization. And, uh, you know, so I guess someone sent this question into
1: you. Yeah, when folks opt into my email list, I just uh, redirect them immediately to a survey that says, hey, you know, what's on your mind? What sort of questions do you have? It's totally optional whether they fill it out, but this question came in through that channel. Gotcha. Cool. And the
0: question was, how do I discover the area of specialization that is both perpetually fascinating to me and valuable to the market? Ah, an age-old question.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's what we all want. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I get this all the time, where people, you know, I I talk about it uh, in the context of positioning and and you know, becoming the go-to person for a particular something, you know, and and it's you're kind of like with with me as a solo. Person or people that work with me who are solo, you're kind of dead in the water if you don't have some kind of differentiator. Because you're, if you're just presenting yourself to the market as uh, just another one of these things, you know, coder, developer, designer, then you, and you're not meaningfully different from anyone, then you're going to have really powerful downward pressure on your prices. Yeah. And no leverage in the negotiation. It's this is a terrible place to be. It's much better to be the one and only of something instead of just one of many. And it just has a dramatic effect on prices that you can charge and also the impact that you can have. Um, All of your marketing suddenly starts to work. Imagine that. Um, So, you know, we're super aligned on this, but the thing, the pushback that this reminds me of is that people have the fear as you coined it many years ago um, about specializing and, and there's a bunch of different ones, but the, a bunch of different fears. There's sort of three or four different fears that'll crop up. And But the, this one comes up all the time where people say to me, uh, I, I totally buy in on the idea of positioning, and I understand why that would be good for me, but which position or which specialization, or they're not the same thing, but which focus do I pick? Like, how right. do I pick the thing?
1: Yeah, and it's, I mean, it, it really kind of gets to the heart of, I think what is intimidating and scary and mysterious about this decision, it's a decision is maybe the first thing we should point out. Like we could, I could make 10 specialization decisions in the next minute if I wanted to, the decision is free. It costs almost nothing, right? Like I could say, well, I want to specialize in, actually the the person who asked this question Went on to say, I could specialize in underwater basket weaving, but I would not want to sink a lot of uh, time and and effort into marketing that unless I have some confidence that there's a market for it. So there's a lot going on there. But the first thing we should point out is like the decision costs nothing. I think what people are worried about is the, the potential negative cost of the decision of like, oh, I made the wrong decision or, I made this decision and it looked great on paper and then it didn't pan out. So that's one thing I think we should talk about more today. Mm-hmm. And then the, there's another really almost headline level aspect to this question, which is uh, the questioner saying, I want this to be perpetually fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, when these questions come in through this form that I send people to, I don't have all the context, right? So I feel a little it it feels a little risky to assume too much but i just don't feel like anyone would use the word perpetually uh by accident you know like mm-hmm. that's that's associated with things like tombstones and you know big <laughs> <laughs> structures and you know in perpetual living memory of so and so it's it's just not a word you toss around casually so i assume that this person really was looking for a way of specializing that would for them be always interesting yeah, never boring. Yeah, right. Yeah, they're afraid they're going to get bored. Right. The answer is it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the simple one sentence answer that that specialization does not exist for anybody.
0: It's kind of like it's kind of like an oxymoron. Like if you're actually
1: specializing, it almost can't get boring. That's the thing. Is I, I'd be curious about your experience with pricing. It probably like your specialization, Jonathan, in Mm -hmm. pricing. Because I don't think it'll quite fit the pattern. But if there is a pattern, I think you could say you do need to be prepared for things to temporarily get, and I'm pausing on purpose because I'm not sure boring is the right word, Um, maybe simpler, maybe less uh, chaotic. And then after you get through a phase of that, Things will get way more interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like S curves and you keep breaking through. So you go up, you go up the learning curve that you're on and you get to the top and you're like, oh, I guess, okay. Is this I, it? I guess I, <laughs> right. And then you're like, whoa, new door opens. Right. And and it's, I mean, the S curve thing is generally in an ascending, you know, learning curve going up. And, you know, if you imagine an S curve, it's sort of like it's a steep incline at the beginning and then it tapers off, it plateaus and then it, another. St- Steep learning curve mm-hmm. and then it plateaus. Uh, but really, there, there's a, a reverse metaphor of you're just going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole and finding new caverns to explore. Yeah. It's,
1: yeah. You know, I, I have this sort of mental model of the human skin. This grosses some people out, which <laughs> makes it even more fun for me to use. But, you know, when you specialize, it's like you're getting a hypodermic needle so that you can pierce the outer layer of the skin, the epidermis, it's mostly dead skin cells, it's very thin, there's not much going on there. There's something there, but you have to get through it to get to the good stuff, which is the dermis and the hypodermis of the skin. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought, you know, when I first laid hold of some of these ideas about specialization and started exploring them, and I was like, oh, I'm an expert after six months in this. (laughs) but that was the epidermis. That was, you know, the thin dead layer where everything is kind of oversimplified and there's not a lot of nuance. And I think anyone who's gone deep into a topic can look back on those early days and maybe they look back on them wistfully and say, wow, things got really way more complicated once I really understood what was going on in this domain that I'm focused on. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you, like me, feel a little bit embarrassed about the kind of advice you were giving then, where it was it was oversimplified. Mm. Once you get to the deeper layers of expertise, you start to things get really interesting because um, you have to learn more from adjacent topics and sort of synthesize a kind of custom medicine that that you apply to your problem. So let's pick on you, Jonathan. Like you're you're focused on pricing. Mm-hmm. If you were to just off the top of your head list to, to, topics that are not explicitly pricing topics that you have to know something about in order to help people with pricing, oh, yeah. what does that list look like? Just name a few. The top three
0: are positioning is number one. It's a foundation uh-huh. of everything. Uh, publishing, so that broadly speaking, that would be speaking at conferences, mm-hmm. um, uh, writing books, daily email, podcasting. And the third one is pricing itself. So that would be mm-hmm. the, the different ways to price so you but you can't do a good job with with without all three of those things. So yeah. and underneath underneath each one of those top level topics, there are dozens and dozens of of considerations. I mean I, I teach entire courses on subtopics of one of these
1: top topics. Yeah. So yeah, it's just endless. Yeah. I mean, just to drill into the positioning thing, there's mm-hmm. like psychology of Because you're not, you and I are both working largely with individuals, solopreneurs. So their psychology has this outsized impact on on their ability to implement. You could give them 10 good decisions. And if it's me, I'll screw up eight of them (laughs) because I don't have the psychology to implement those 10 good ideas. Mm -hmm. So there's psychology, there's risk profile, like how do you respond to risk? There's, you know, like in the publishing world, how good do you look on camera? <laughs> like do <laughs> your eyes dart around and you look like you're nervous and your skin's a little sweaty. Mm-hmm. And maybe you should choose audio. Like there's all these things that you and I have both had to get up to speed on in order to give advice that's not oversimplified. And I think that maps to almost anybody who has specialized. They get past that outer layer of the of the expertise. Mm-hmm. And then they there's this whole world of it's not chasing shiny objects. It's finding the missing pieces so that you can deliver a solution. Yeah. That's a great way to put
0: it. Yes. That's exactly how it feels to me too. You're look, you're like, cause you know, when you're, when you're coaching people, you've got this real time laboratory with instant feedback, you know, mm-hmm. so you, you, you can, it's one thing to have all these ideas. And uh, like you said, early on, I knew it worked for me and I knew it was, I trusted that it was going to work for me. You know, this process of specialization, uh, in my, in what I was focused on when I went solo, Right. I was highly confident it was going to work because I was copying my ex boss who, you know, I just ran his playbook. It worked for him and then I did it and it worked for me, but it was, that's kind of like saying like, I stole his car <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I knew how to drive it, but I didn't know what was going on under the hood. I didn't know why it worked. Right. So, you know, I could tell people, look, you need to be, I didn't even, I don't even think I was using the word positioning back then. It was like, you need to become the go-to person for something. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, years ago, when I first started coaching people, I was like, just, you know, this exact topic, just pick something. It doesn't matter. Just pick something. And they'd be like, but what anything, what are you most interested, you know? And, and then yeah. you come to find out that, um, they can't do it. Like they cannot make themselves do it. So then opens up a whole rabbit hole of me being like, all right, let me lift up the hood on this car and see what's going on in here. Right. And it, and you know, there's like a bottomless well of fun new things to learn to, to help you be more effective at helping other people get over these hurdles.
1: One of the complications that gets introduced then is you have this, uh, this decision that you've made. Okay. I'm going to help people with pricing. Right. And, now you know all this really cool stuff it wasn't shiny object it wasn't the pursuit of shiny objects it was the pursuit of the components for a complete solution
0: yep
1: where you reduce the failure rate of your work and you're you just you're effective more frequently because you know you have all these pieces that you can bring to bear on this problem that's that seems simple at first and now you realize oh there's a whole engine under here <laughs> yeah. you know an eight cylinder internal combustion engine mm-hmm. Anyway, um, how much of that do you start exposing to people? That's one of the complications that comes up in that middle layer. Mm. Um, but you haven't really you have not, to be clear, really changed the specialization. And now, and you've you've got this whole vista of stuff to learn about, and it's exciting because it makes you better at what you do. it's not it's not like a distraction, it's not a relief from boredom. It's, it's just a quest of something that works more robustly, more effectively.
0: Yeah. It's the relief of tension that has been created through failure. So, right. so like it feels like hunting for puzzle pieces, but that's not the greatest metaphor because with a puzzle, you can sort of see what's missing. Right. But with the, with what you're talking about, it's almost like you think in the early stage, you think the puzzle's done and then you find that there's a whole section that you missed and then you're like, and then that creates this tension, or like a hunger or an itch yeah. that, you, that you need to scratch. So it's yeah, like you said, it's not like oh I'm bored. Let's learn how to do Kubernetes today. You know for right. no reason, uh, just because it's people are talking about it. You're like hmm, what's that? It's it's very different from that. It's more like um, it feels much more urgent, and there's almost never a question about where to find the piece. It's more like okay, I
1: see this hole. how do I fill that hole? It's very directed. Yeah. It's, it's, it's innovation work. It's invention. Exactly. But you don't get to do it unless you get through the outer layer. That's the thing is at the outer layer, you think, Oh, just, you know, raise your prices, negotiate on value. You know, you have these (laughs) ideas that are true, but they're simplistic versions of the real thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But so you don't really know what all that, innovation work is going to look like when you're in this early phase of specialization. So I'm really sympathetic to folks who are like, this is a difficult decision because I don't know, it's sort of like um, if you, I guess if you have kids and you're trying to help them learn a form of discipline and you can see all the ways it's going to pay off later in their life to have this discipline, whatever it is. Mm-hmm but they can't. And they're like, just why? (laughs) It's a little bit like that, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's that quality of like, you don't know what's underneath the skin, the surface layer of the skin. And so you're, you're trying to make this decision about specialization um, without that knowledge. And the thing is you can't know, you just have to trust yourself. All the The research skills, all the skills that you've built up this far in your life, you'll get to use them as a, to assemble that complete solution and you'll build new skills as well. But you just don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Um, The other thing that I think is worth pointing out is something that you mentioned, choose anything, just choose anything, just start. Mm -hmm. You were, uh, I think it's fair to say, giving that advice because you just wanted to help people get over an obstacle um but it, it was kind of a blunt instrument right like they oh couldn't, yeah they couldn't really hear that it doesn't work <laughs> yeah but there is you're recognizing something that's true about specializing which is you get a few years to figure it out as you're doing it nothing is set in stone at that early stage this is less true with larger organizations where you've got uh staff and you need to create alignment and you can't whipsaw them around every right. six months with a different direction, but with just you as a soloist, you can do that for a while. Right. And the whip sawing is an extreme um, version of what might happen. It might be more like fine tuning. Um, I like using the analogy of something you probably can't really do, which is uh, get in a kayak on Lake Mead and kayak up to the face of the Hoover dam. Uh, they probably won't let you do that for a good reason. Mm-hmm. But along the way, there's some hazards. There's these intake towers that suck, I don't know, thousands of gallons of water a minute into the turbines at at Hoover Dam. And it would be possible, I suppose, to steer your kayak into one of those intake towers. Uh, Again, reality is not as exciting. You probably wouldn't get sucked in. They have grates over them. (laughs) But I like to use that analogy because it's really is what it's like. You would have to, to end up getting sucked into the, you know, the intake of the Hoover Dam, you'd have to ignore so much information as you were kayaking towards your intended destination. Yeah. You just would have to like close your eyes and have earplugs and, and just blindly reality is not like that. You just, yeah get what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah, you'd almost have to be, you know,
0: it'd be, you'd have to have, uh, I don't want to use the word suicidal, but like, you'd be trying to create, commit career suicide. You have to like, try to do it. But people are afraid it's just accidentally going to happen. It's like they, it's like they're acting like they're walking on a tightrope
1: between two skyscrapers. And really, it's on the ground. We must have something in our head that gives us this Inaccurate model of how it works. Like it, I don't think it's some mass delusion. I think there's something about, I mean, I say, I, I say much less than half jokingly, this is not a face tattoo that you're getting on your face when you decide to specialize. Where if the tattoo artist is having an off day, you're going to have to live with that for the rest of your life. <laughs> it's not like that at all. But there's something in us, most of us, that makes us think that it is. And I'm not quite sure what, I haven't figured that out yet, but I, I have a hypothesis. So I'd love to hear it.
0: I th- specializing. I, I think it, I think it has everything to do with standing out from the crowd, which on an evolutionary time scale, that was an extremely risky thing to do. So you want to fit in for the majority, majority of the time, of yeah. the, time <laughs> the vast majority of the time that humans have been on the earth. A really bad thing to do would be to go off on your own. And, and it's, it always felt the comfort zone was this is a Seth Godin ism, but the comfort zone and the safety zone were like the Venn diagram was one circle inside of another circle completely inside. So like it was both safe and comfortable to stay with the crowd. But now these days, the safety zone is completely outside of the comfort zone. So the things that feel comfortable are not safe, at least in a Mm -hmm. business sense. If you don't stand apart from the crowd, you are just you know i already said it's like you're just one of many so of course people are going to go for the cheapest one you need to stand apart from all you know you need to do something different from everyone else which feels like career suicide right so i i suspect that there's a connection there between that sort of tribal mentality lizard brain stuff because that the the reaction that you get i'm sure you've had the same experience but the reaction that i get from a non-trivial percentage of people who are facing the idea of focusing down niching down or getting a, a more tighter specialization or positioning themselves very tightly it is an irrational response to the suggestion an ir- irrational yeah. level of pushback
1: yeah it's helpful to remember that one of the just core fundamental problems that the internet poses is this oversupply of information <laughs> So, you know, earlier in our conversation, Jonathan, you were talking about the benefits. Thank you, by the way, for selling this idea for me. (laughs) The benefits (laughs) of specializing. They go even further upstream than where you started, which was, you know, all the sort of once you're talking to a prospective client benefits, but even just earning the visibility needed to get inbound inquiries is dramatically easier when you've specialized. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen automatically. It just starts to solve one of these big problems that we all face, which is the internet is, you know, a, a million fire hoses of information pointed at whoever wants to stand in front of it. <laughs> so, um, and increasingly that's all of us, all humans anyway. So, um, yeah, so how do you break through? How do you,
0: it's, it's this, it's funny cause people do want inbound leads. People do want to, to, um, to, s- to be differentiated like people don't mind that idea for some reason they're okay with like oh yeah i want to be differentiated um but when it but their are underst- their imagination of what's going to get them there is usually com- like a complete miscalculation you mm-hmm. know like the differentiation the, the typical safe style differentiation with say a, a software developer that i'll be talking to they'll say something like um they'll point to their competitors and say that they're that like, Oh, I'm better than Bob. I'm better than all of these, you know, these guys mm-hmm. and gals. And it's like, but the differentiators that they lean on are not meaningful to their ideal buyers. Yeah. Like even, even though they haven't picked an ideal buyer, I'm positive that anybody who would be willing to, to, to you know, pay Bob the developer a bunch of money is going to be someone who doesn't understand 99.99% of what Bob does he just understands the outcome that Bob can deliver. So for Bob to be better than Alice at something is meaningless to the customer. So the, the differenti so that, so like there, yeah, I'm, I'm different in some way that only I understand, or that is that even if I could explain it, my buyers wouldn't understand.
1: Yeah. Um, I think, a you know, a good sort of challenge for listeners would be like, if, if they hear you talking about that, and say, well, what else, how else do you differentiate? You know, like I'm used to running a factory and I like to brag about the efficiency of the conveyor belt. (laughs) Right. Um, Right. (laughs) Who cares? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I Actually did visit a tile factory in Spain a few years ago. Uh, This was connected to work. My wife does. She runs a podcast for this big Spanish tile company and they had actually a very, I mean, this stuff is interesting. I, I say this to make, Uh, Us not sound like out of touch jerks. (laughs) We saw the conveyor belt that took the product from the manufacturing floor to a warehouse that was next door. And it was really cool. They had it on like a two or three degree incline so that it would use less electricity. There is beautiful, really cool stuff that goes into that level of nuance. But the challenge for listeners, if they're saying, well, you know, what else, how else can you differentiate is I would say, ask yourself, how do I help my clients respond to or initiate change in a way that it really helps the clients? And that might be an interesting sort of thought experiment that helps take you out of thinking about how many degrees of incline are on the conveyor belt. Right. Yeah,
0: to, to, I love that visual. So like, just take that one step further and drive it home. If you were buying tile and it said on the box some information about the two degree incline on the conveyor right. belt in the factory in Italy, that is not going to c- cause you to want to spend more money on the tile. Like if, if you get it, the tile right next to it that looks essentially the same to you, you don't see any meaningful difference, it's $5 cheaper per box. And the only difference between the two (laughs) was to learn how to two, two degree incline conveyor belt. Right. You don't care. You don't care.
1: You don't have the context to even understand what that means. Yeah. 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 So So, you're not going to pay more for it is the point. So yeah, think, think about how you help your clients respond to or initiate change because that kind of pulls you up to the level of the business and the profit and loss sheet. You're probably not comfortable there. That's fine. Starting to be sympathetic to those concerns, I think is is a route out of that kind of navel gazing focus on your craft, which is important and beautiful, <laughs> not denying that. But you have to say, what is that? In what is that? That excellence of craft in service of? Mm-hmm. And if the answer really, really, really is, well, I don't know, I just want to be good at this craft. I don't really care about anything else. Then probably you can make that work as a career. It's just, you're going to face some limitations.
0: Yeah. Get a job, get a job doing it. Right. If yeah. you're running a business, you can't not do marketing. Yeah. Like not, doesn't, doesn't happen. Like there's a reason every big company has a CMO, like the executive suite has a marketer. Yeah. We're pretty much, I, you know, if there's an exception, I don't know about it. And the, the other, uh, you might like this one We're we're having like, it's like meta metaphor volleyball here. Um, <laughs> the, uh, like, which I guess is a metaphor unto itself. <laughs> uh, but I was talking the other day about this sort of navel gazing on the craft and like you said, I love it It's great. It's it's a phase though. And it, it, it reminds me of you know I, I'm a guitar player performing musician for years It reminds me of the phase as a guitarist where you're like you're in your bedroom and you're so new to it That you're like looking at your hands. You can't even play. You can't even look up You're just staring at your left hand and then you look at your right hand and you put the finger, you know, on this fret and then you pluck the string with your right hand and eventually you get better at it and better at it and better at it. And, you know, maybe someday in this progression, you'll be on stage in front of a group of people, but you still might be looking down at your guitar thinking about your craft Hmm. instead of looking up and caring about how the audience is reacting to your performance. That's a huge leap it's a huge leap when you finally look up and start to at least empathize with the audience. Like you said, at least start to think, even if you don't understand, you know, the balance sheet stuff, Mm -hmm. recognize that that's a major concern of the people who are hiring you. And so, you know, I usually talk about, you know, like what's the transformation, what's the transformation that they want you to contribute to, you know, which is basically another way to say what you said already, which is like, what is the change, right?
1: And that that can become a sort of magnetic force that takes you to the deepest level of expertise, the hypodermis of expertise, to use our skin analogy. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I like to say that that's where context goes supernova. You start to care about the broader context that your work exists in. Hopefully you have... I'm describing this as a linear progression. It's not quite so linear in reality. But hopefully you have... Uh, a solution that works better than that superficial version did. And then you start to think about context, like, huh, why does this person in this job role always seem like they resist this kind of change? It's not some it's not arbitrary. It's not dumb. You're starting to recognize a pattern that's a byproduct of the context that you're working in. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, oh, I mean, maybe it's not something so. Exotic, and you're just like, well, their salary depends on them, them <laughs> resisting this change. Like, it's not going to go well for them if they do anything other than resist it. It might be something simple, but you start to think about and care about and sort of interact with the the larger context that you work within. And I think that's maybe one of the main things that's going on at the deepest level of expertise. And you know, if you think about yourself as a performer trying to connect with an audience, that that idea that you could move the audience kind of becomes a motivating factor.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's a related, but different, uh, is it a different skill? It kind of is. So like the, for develop any developers listening to this, when, when a developer goes through software developer goes through this phase, it's right around the time when they stop feeling any desire to learn new frameworks, Mm -hmm. new, new frameworks come out all the time. And there's always some new shiny hotness and at a certain point you can like when you start to feel the fatigue it doesn't seem like fun to learn the new whatever the new flavor of the week it seems like a a, just a hamster wheel yeah i i think that's a fork in the road that's an opportunity for you to either chuck it all and go be a garbage man or say like well wait a second how can i how can i with the tools that i have how can i have a bigger impact on the people who are hiring me. So it's that's the point where you s- start to think about your craft less. You've mastered uh, not the entire corpus of like software development knowledge. I doubt anyone. Could. I'm sure no one could. Sure. It just changes too fast. But at a certain point, you're really, really you have mastered the tools that you have chosen, and and you're not you're a little bit less. I don't want to say bored, but yeah, it's a little bit like bored. I mean, you're kind of bored with the tools that you have, but you're amazing at them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then this new hotness comes out and it's like, Ugh, do I really want to learn? Do I really want to go all the way back down the learning curve yeah. and, co- and like, what's that even going to do for me if I do? And that's the fork in the road where you can either say, forget it. I'm going to just change careers or I'm going to go in-house and just do, I'm just going to do what I do now f- until nobody needs it anymore, you know, or you can start to focus on the audience you know, and be like, like, oh, well, uh, it, and, and what that looks like is talking to them and learning things like, well, why did you, you know, reaching back out to an old client, remember that project we did, you know, why did you even want to do that? You know, like what, what was the benefit? And I, I have the exercise that I have people do the actionable thing that people can do is reach back out to their clients, say, Hey, I'm updating my website um, could you, you know, could you give me a testimonial for the project that we worked on together? And here are six questions. If they say, yes, here are six questions that you could answer and they'll give you a results-based testimonial. And the the thing about that exercise is it, because the thing, the thing about that exercise is it articulates to the, the software developer, like my student, it articulates to them, their client articulates to them the value, and it, it has nothing to do with elegant code. It has nothing to do with, um, uh, like like your mastery of your skill, nothing. It's always really high-level stuff like it transformed our business. Oh, how? Well, our our conversion rate doubled or our our workflow was so smooth that we were able to scale to other regions. It's this really high-level business stuff, you know? And, and it opens the person's eyes to like, oh, wow, the whole time, you know, I just felt like I was writing amazing code but really what I was doing was creating this transformation, you know, and it's, this, it's that, this is that point when you're kind of bored of what you do, or you feel like you've, you've, you have this sense of mastery. It might not be boring. You might still like it, but, uh, but you're, you're turned off by the idea of constantly learning a new framework. And then you can, that is the point where you say to yourself, huh, maybe I should focus, maybe I should focus on the audience. Like Bruce Springsteen's a mediocre guitar player and a mediocre singer but he is so focused on the audience that he creates an amazing experience using this sort of limited tool set that he has. I mean, he's he's a great musician, but you know, he's a, he's a great performer. He's not a virtuoso on the instrument, but he doesn't need to be because he knows how to yeah. connect with the audience and get them what they want. That's a great
1: example. I have always uh, enjoyed the NPR Tiny Desk concert series, which you can find on YouTube. Uh, pretty easily, at least here in the United States. So they've, during the pandemic, have been uh, inviting artists to, you know, record something at home or in some local uh, venue and and send it in. And the difference is so interesting. I think it speaks to what you're just talking about, Jonathan, to, to look at, um, so I mean, sometimes it's the same artist that has performed physically there at their... I don't know Washington D.C. or New York or wherever wherever those are recorded, uh, with a, a small audience there, and then recording usually where the audience is like the camera dude, right, who's operating the camera. Um, it's palpable, and it really is a, a nice sort of artsy metaphor for what happens when you start thinking about the the context where your work exists and how it can how it did or did not have impact in that context and then how it could have more impact if you change some things about how you approach it so that's just a, a fun thing folks can do it's it's not exactly a direct teaching instrument to look at some youtube videos but yeah. y- it's the same feeling really yeah yeah when you're a performer like what you're
0: describing um it's nice to know that it is obvious to the audience uh, because you know it's like i used to play I literally gave myself carpal tunnel syndrome playing like 18 hours a day. I would like just Mm. eat, sleep and drink the guitar for a long time. And it was the same way Mm -hmm. when I first really got into coding professionally. I was just loved it. I just loved the, the, the physicality of it. I just loved everything about it. Um, But now I I can't barely make myself play in my bedroom. You know, like Mm -hmm. what's the point? There's no like, because I've gotten to that point where it's like yeah, this this is my set of tools. I'm not going to learn sax at this point. Right. <laughs> I'm not going to I'm not going to start doing jazz fusion. I'm like a dopey heavy metal like rock guy.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. So that that's kind of not that I couldn't branch out into something else, but it's just not interesting to me at this point. So what would make it interesting is uh, an audience, honestly. Yeah. And it's not interesting if there's no audience, so it's just like really boring. It's the same it's the same with this stuff now, like when I do a solo podcast episode, I'm not talking to someone or it's not a webinar with like an audience. I, I'm like, oh, I have to start over a hundred times. And it's yeah. just like, there's no energy to it. Just like the, there's just no wind in the sail. If you're not connecting, even if you can't see the other people, if you know they're there, there's like um, a different kind of energy. And it's 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 and it's and scary, right? It's scary to yeah. look up at, from your fingers and, and start and see like a thousand, you know, pairs of eyes staring back at you. It's, that can be a lot of pressure, but that's the, like, that's the, you know, you need to, to muster up the courage to get, to, I guess, get over that hump or whatever it is and start to worry about their experience, the client
1: experience. That's, that's what I love about the kind of human beings who hire me to help with some part of this journey. And maybe it's most human beings. Um, I'd like to think that it is, you get to that point where bored, you, you are bored. And instead of it being a a destructive thing, it's like a, it's a creative thing that leads you to say, what is, okay, I'm good at X. I've gotten past the superficial level with this, but what is it really for? Like for what purpose am I good at X? And one answer, it's not the only answer. uh, One answer is, oh, I could help a lot more people if I if I acquire some new skills, learn some new things, push push into and beyond a, an area of discomfort. Wow, I could, it's not that you and I, I think, are not trying to push people to build some kind of audience-based business. When we use audience, uh, that word, I think folks should not take that too literally. But they, but they could think of the group, the, the broader, larger group of people that they could benefit, uh, you know, their skills could benefit them. And, mm-hmm. and that creates this growth that takes you deeper into expertise and into mastery. Maybe the mastery of your skills doesn't increase and it's a sort of a new learning. And that ultimately is why when someone says, you know, I want to make one decision about an area of focus that's going to be perpetually fascinating <laughs> to had me. had
0: to bring it back, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. I say, that's not going to happen, but something better will happen. And what, what that better looks like is you'll make a choice, you'll fine-tune it in the early days, and then you'll find traction mm-hmm. because you're listening, you're paying attention to what is happening in the market. Mm-hmm. And then that traction will take you deeper, you'll become dissatisfied with your simplistic skills. So you'll build this more complex sort of composite of multiple skills. And then you'll get bored again. And then you'll be like, what is this really for? Like, why am I doing this? And you know, maybe you'll <laughs> do the middle-aged man thing if you're a middle-aged man and get a divorce and a sports car. But um, <laughs> maybe instead you will go to that deepest level and you'll start electrifying your audience with something about your expertise. Right. And
0: that's right. what I
1: love about uh, you know the work that I do and I think that you do, Jonathan, is, um, is that it, it It gets people to these points of frustration and then gets it gets them through those points of frustration right yeah it creates tension
0: and release more music metaphor yeah so what's the takeaway here are we trying to open people's eyes to those moments that are kind of like full of opportunity where they're kind of bored
1: yeah i mean there's there's an aspect of that um that probably is a great place to leave it i mean i'll i'll probably uh, undermine myself a little bit here by saying that the kind of system that surrounds where you specialize does seem to matter. Uh, I don't have like clear, easy ways of explaining it, but there are systems that are a little bit more open, and if you specialize in those, something in in those systems, even if they are a platform they'll probably be more interesting and there's just more opportunity there.
0: Oh, that's a great
1: point. Yeah. Can I just pile on there? <laughs> yeah. A- and let me uh, try to set you up for that. Like you, you specialized in uh, mobile computing mm-hmm. when you were doing uh strategy consulting. Right. Um, and to, that strikes me as an open system. And I think that's why that specialization lasted for as long as it did for you before the system kind of, got less open and, you know, the consolidated and the established players were pretty obvious. And yep. anyway, maybe that's the thing to talk about.
0: Yeah. So that's, yeah, that is perfect. So the previous, my previous specialization to the mobile consulting was, um, was I was a FileMaker consultant and FileMaker is a really, really small closed system. It's a powerful thing if any filemaker developers are listening i'm not ragging on filemaker but there there was a point in time where i'd been doing doing it professionally for like maybe five years it's just not that complicated a piece of software and it really felt like months would go by and i wouldn't learn a new thing about it and it was like i was totally plateaued it was like nobody knows everything about everything but there was not a lot that i knew about that there was not a lot that i didn't know about that software that mattered Yeah. Right. Which was a characteristic of closed systems. Yeah. Yeah. Very closed system in the scheme of things.
1: Controlled by one company, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: Yes. And you couldn't have much influence over it. It didn't change very frequently back then, especially it was very slow moving. Um, You know, it was a shrink wrap software for crying out loud. So Mm. that, so then I, then I moved to uh, the mobile consulting, which is a, a more open system, but, uh not as open as what I'm doing now which is pricing which is which is essentially psychology but yeah. uh which is way more open and I can feel the I won't live long enough to exhaust <laughs> the possibilities of exploring pricing I think it's the most fascinating puzzle or focus that imaginable to me so I I absolutely love it but I I just wanted to give examples of like you know, it's like a spectrum, you know, there's like this really close system, like FileMaker, you can, you can actually get to the edges of it in a few years and be like, huh, okay, I guess that's how that works. Uh, And then a bigger system, more players, more complex ecosystem, and then like uh, a a giant global, like, like pricing touches all 7 billion plus people on the planet every day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it, well, I mean, it's interesting because the hot take of an outsider about pricing might be like, oh, that seems simple. You just charge more, right? Like, <laughs> case closed. Uh, whereas, you know, some, uh, even even a, a relatively simple software platform like Salesforce or FileMaker or, you know, name your, your sort of closed-ish platform. Trello, G Suite, whatever. You know, it would take a few years to master that. Maybe yep. not Trello, but. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not Trello. Anyway, um, if, I think listeners get the point. On the surface, pricing seems simpler, but it's an open system and it's massive in scale. And as a heuristic, that is almost always going to lead to a more interesting specialization. Uh, We might even say perpetually interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, there you have
0: it, folks. Cool. Geez, I feel like we should do this more often. It's like, I don't think we've talked in like over a year at least.
1: I know that pandemic, man. (laughs) Yeah, this has been great. And I don't know if we have exhausted the listeners' uh, patience, but hopefully not. Hopefully this has been really uh, interesting, as interesting and hopefully as valuable. Cool. Well, where can people find out more? Maybe join your mailing list. They could go to philipmorganconsulting.com. There's one L in Philip. Uh, If they wanted to, they could go to positioningcrashcourse.com. And they could take an email course there that talks about some of this stuff. Um, I'm going to be honest, that course is a little bit out of date. It needs to be updated, but it's a good starting point.
0: All right, Philip, thanks so
1: much for joining
0: me. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I think people are going to value it. Great being here with you, Jonathan. All right, that's it for this time. I'm Jonathan Stark, and this is Ditching Hourly. Would you like to learn how to get paid what you're worth? How about selling your expertise and not your labor? What about making more money without working more hours? We work through all of this together in The Pricing Seminar. Registration starts soon, so head on over to thepricingseminar.com to add your name to the announcement list. That URL again is thepricingseminar.com. I hope to see you there.